Amen. Powerful, powerful section of Scripture here as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. Before we get into the text for just a minute, I want to lay a, a little bit of a groundwork for uh, this letter of 2 Corinthians that Paul writes. He, he writes this letter, he's about 20 years into his ministry since he got knocked off a horse on the road to Damascus and met Jesus Christ on that road. It's been about 20 years. It's been a lot of work, a lot of hardship, a lot of struggle, also a, a, a lot of seeing the work of God manifested in remarkable ways. Churches being planted all over Asia Minor and even into Europe and in different places. God using Paul in remarkable ways. But even as the ministry has increased, the attack on him personally has also increased. And he had written a letter earlier to Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, he's dealing with different issues in the church, chapter by chapter, with different issues that had come up in that church that needed to be addressed. But in this letter specifically, more than any other letter, although you see hints of it in most of Paul's letters, in 2 Corinthians, you see uh, a personal side of Paul that he reveals that it, it is deeper and more personal than anywhere else. Because in, in 2 Corinthians, he is dealing head-on with men who have come into the church, who have attacked him personally to undercut the truth of the gospel that he has preached. And in order to do, to do that, to attack his gospel, the word that God's given him, they attack Paul in very personal ways. And so you'll see scattered throughout this letter, some of it's happened before chapter 4, much of it happens after chapter 4, but Paul is continually attacking uh, those who have, have slandered him. And he comes at them hard. It, sometimes if you read through 2 Corinthians, it's almost like uh, you're reading two different people. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, the church, and, and in soft tones with great love. But then as he begins to talk about those who've slandered him, he comes at them hard. He comes at, he's making war with them. He's not pulling any punches. He's not playing any games. So you read through this, and he... Uh, time after time confronts those who have slandered him and he re rebuts what they've said about him. He says, in essence, I'm not a false apostle. Jesus Christ met me on the road to Damascus. I have a word from God through Jesus Christ. I am a true apostle. I'm not a liar. They've been told that Paul's a liar. I'm not a manipulator. I'm not manipulating you to get things from you. And so he comes at them on that uh, I'm not operating by my flesh. I'm not yes and no. I don't know which way to go. I'm operating and seeking God and walking by the Spirit of God. He attacks those who have slandered him on every level. But in the scripture we're about to read, there's something different here. Because in this particular passage, Paul is saying to their accusation against him, Paul, you're weak. Paul... You're not very impressive. Some of these other apostles that have come in here, who are not, not apostles at all, some of these other men and teachers, they are impressive. Their words are weighty. Their appearance is powerful. They've got something together. And Paul, you are weak. You are an unimpressive little twerp. 
Years ago, my wife and I used to teach uh, Sunday school uh, to, to young children, and we used the David C. Cook Sunday school material. Anyone ever use David C. Cook Sunday school material? I see that hand. I see that hand. Glory to God. In David C. Cook, tell me if I'm wrong, the Apostle Paul was always a short, little, bald guy with red hair who looked kind of funky. I doubt historically that Paul had red hair. I don't think it was from Ireland. I could be wrong. But my biblical history says, but, but the fact that he appeared to be kind of weak, a, a little bit nerdy, um, probably wearing a sweater like mine, I don't know. But, you know, Paul was a little different. He was not like these other super apostles, these men who came in and could just blow the people away. So Paul's defense, when they say, Paul, you're weak. Paul, you're, you're, you're nothing to look at. You're, you're not impressive in your speech, although he was weighty in his intellect and his walk with God. Paul's defense is, you're right. You got me. Guilty is charged. So let's look at what he has to say here. I want to talk for a few minutes from the, the topic, a treasure in a clay pot. A treasure in a clay pot. Verse 7, it says, for we have this treasure. What is the treasure he's talking about? As you read through uh, up for the first three chapters and even into uh, chapter 4, it's clear. The treasure that he's talking about is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This treasure of remarkable value. This treasure that you cannot put a price on. This treasure that changes people's lives forever. That takes them out of the kingdom of Satan and puts them into the kingdom of God. This treasure that we have that transforms sinners into saints. This treasure, he says, that we have. If you go back into chapter 3 as he talks about it a little bit. Verse 7, he says, Now... If the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is, the law of Moses, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case... What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He talks about the incomparable glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that even Moses the great prophet of the Old Testament, and, and the glory of the word that he shared, he says, in comparison, it's worthless, it's useless, it has no value in comparison to this new and living word through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he talks about this treasure that we have, this treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says we have this treasure in jars of clay. In jars of clay. John MacArthur speaks about the terminology that uh, Paul is drawing from here, the Greek word for jars of clay, it's baked clay. We have this treasure in baked clay. You are heated up dirt. 
That's what the treasure's in. Heated up dirt, baked clay. He says it's common, it's cheap, it's easily breakable, it's easily replaceable, it's valueless, and I'm sorry, ladies, but, but John MacArthur said this. He said it's homely. Ouch. Common, cheap, easily broken, replaceable, valueless, homely. Ain't nothing to it. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Mm. Powerful stuff. Timothy, or, or Paul uses the same terminology in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20 when he says, Now in a large house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now, clay pots in the first century were used for a lot of different things. Um, they could be used to store jewelry and to store something of, of value. But most often, clay pots were used as something that you just put your junk in. Uh, I, have a, I don't have a garage, but I have a basement. And my basement looks like a jacked up basement. I have to, I have to say it. One day I'll turn it into a man cave, but it ain't there yet. It is a jacked up basement. So you go in the basement, you have like an old pail, and you just kind of throw junk in it, whatever. That's kind of what it is. It's a clay pot, just junk goes in it, whatever goes in it. And it, as a matter of fact, in the first century, they didn't have sewage systems like we have now. So what do you think went into those clay pots, y'all? Come on, do the math. Okay, you, you got it. All kind of mess went into the clay pots. And Paul says, we have this treasure in clay pots. A treasure in a clay pot. So, if we have the treasure of the gospel, and we're clay pots, then understand that we are all here. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we are treasure keepers. We're treasure keepers. That treasure is in a clay pot, but the treasure is priceless. Ah, but we have a responsibility with that treasure. We have a responsibility to keep it. We have a responsibility to be, to be real with it, to share it. But it's in this clay pot. So how is it? How do treasure keepers keep that treasure? Three things I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. I'll go through the three of them now, and then we'll go one by one. But... Treasure keepers, number one, embrace their frailty. That's the first point that I'll make today. Treasure keepers embrace their frailty. Secondly, treasure keepers are grounded in their faith. Treasure keepers are grounded in their faith. And lastly, thirdly, treasure keepers do not lose heart. We're going to look at these verses and look at each one of those things. So let's just run right into the first one. Treasure keepers embrace their frailty look at again i'm going to start uh, at verse seven again but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to god and not to us paul says don't get it twisted it's not because of who you are it's not your education it's not where you've been it's not who your mama and daddy is it's not anything that you can point to in yourself we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. You will not get glory out of it. God will get glory out of it. And then in verses 8 and 9, he goes through a rough list. 
He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We are at war all day long. Paul was constantly in fear of his life. They wanted him dead. They wanted him out. They wanted him off the scene. So he's going through all of these things. And let's just pay a little bit of attention to the words that Paul uses here. First of all, particularly those things that he says we are, we are afflicted, he says. The Greek word is phlebo, T-H-L-I-B-O, if you transliterate it, phlebo. And that word means to press something very hard. It's used of pressing grapes. You imagine you want to make either grape juice or some wine, you've got to press all the juice out of that, those grapes. Paul says, we are afflicted, we are hard-pressed, another translation says. We're pressed upon. The word can also mean distressed or troubled. We are being pushed, we are being uh, 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 pressed upon very hard, and all of, it seems like the life is being sucked right out of us, Paul says. He says, but we're not crushed. We're not to the very end, to where we can't go anymore. You may, you may press us all the way, but there's something left at the end. See, when I get to the end of all the me being crushed out of me, when you do that with me, then you end up with Jesus. You end up with the Holy Spirit. Because you pushed me to my very end, I got no more, but now let's see what God can do. He says next, we are perplexed, apareo is the word. I don't like this one at all. We're perplexed, he says, <clears throat> which means to be in doubt. Paul, I thought you were the apostle, man. To be without resources, to be left wanting, to be embarrassed, not to know which way to turn. Mm. Wait a second, Paul, you, you wrote half the doggone New Testament. You planted all these churches, you did all this work, and you say, I, I'm, I'm perplexed, I, I don't know which way to turn. It can mean not to know how to decide or what to do. So not only do I not know what to do, I don't know how to know what not to know of what not to do that I don't know. Did that make any sense to anybody? I hope not, because it didn't make any sense to me. But, but what Paul is saying, I'm perplexed, I don't even know what I should know to do what I should or shouldn't do. I'm perplexed. But I'm not driven to despair. I'm not other, utterly lost. I'm not utterly destitute. I'm confused. I'm, I'm perplexed. But at the end of the day, there's hope at the bottom again. He says, I'm persecuted. Persecuted. Dioko is the word. Persecuted means to make, to run, or flee, to put to flight, or drive away. Paul constantly, from town to town, planting church after church, is being driven out, being driven away, being harassed. He's being persecuted. It means to harass, to molest, to press on. Paul says, man, I am constantly being persecuted, but I'm never abandoned. I'm persecuted by men, but I'm not abandoned by God. And lastly, he says, 
We are being struck down. Katabalo is the Greek word. We're being struck down. That means to cast someone down, as in a fight, as in a war. Like we saw the brothers up here throwing one another down. He said, I'm being cast down. I'm being knocked down over and over and over again. I'm being knocked down. But he says, but not knocked out. I'm not destroyed. You can knock me down, but you can't knock me out. I get up again. Why? Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is in me, that is on me, that is working through me. I'm cast down. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. Not entirely put to death. Not, not declared uh, an end to or not ruined because of the Lord. Now, each of these words uh, that Paul uses here is a, a present passive participle. Well, who cares about a present passive participle? What does that mean? It simply means that it indicates action that's currently taking place or which repeatedly takes place. So in other words, Paul is saying that being afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down is not just something that had happened to me years ago before I got saved. Or maybe it happened to me 10 or 15 years ago, you know, when I messed up. But he said, you know what? This affliction, this perplexity, this persecution, this being struck down is part of my normal walk with God. Mm. I'm a clay pot, y'all. I'm not putting on a front. I've got it all together all the time. Look at me now. Look at me. No, look at Jesus Christ. Because even though if you look at me, I may be down. But oh, look another day. I'll be right back up because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. Paul is saying this is a normal part of the Christian life. See, this is why the, the whole prosperity, health and wealth kind of thing, it does not, not only doesn't it work, not only is it, is, is it not biblical, but at the end of the day, where does it leave people? It leaves them broken and destroyed because I put my hope in something that God never promised. God didn't promise I'd have it all together on this side and it always looked good to everyone else. Paul said, man, I'm struck down, I'm afflicted, I'm perplexed. I'm in all this mess and this is a constant thing with me. This is part of the normal Christian life. Now I hope for you, I know for me, that can give me some hope. Because it's funny, these four things are what I've spent much of my Christian life trying to avoid. Because someone told me, if you just pray hard enough, if you just walk right with God, if you just, you know, get it, make sure you don't miss uh, uh, Sunday service, make sure you don't miss Wednesday night Bible study, make sure you do everything. If you do it all right, you'll be all right. Paul said, look, I think I'm, I'm doing it pretty right here, but the fact of the matter is, I'm afflicted, perplexed, struck down, and persecuted. It's not abnormal in the Christian walk. That ought to be good news. Because I'm looking at the faces of perplexed, struck down, afflicted folk right now. You're going through some stuff. If you're not going through it now, you'll be going through it tomorrow. You're going to go through. So there's an issue here. Look at verse 10. He says... Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus 
may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says the way of death is always a prerequisite to the manifestation of Jesus' life in the life of a believer. It is the way of death. It is the way of, of, of walking with God that is not consumed with me. It's consumed with His glory. It's consumed with, am I honoring God in my walk? Come what may. That way that leads to the death of our flesh over and over and over again is the way in which the life of Christ is manifested through us as His vessels. We embrace death that we might manifest life. And so the issue here, you know, we are told over and over again, the problem with folks is that they, they don't have high enough self-esteem. What we need to do is just build up people's self-esteem, and then they'll be all together, they'll be all good, they'll be all right. And, and the, the problem with that is that that is an extremely unbiblical diagnosis. Our problem most often is that our self-esteem is way too high. We think way too much of ourselves. That's why Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12, 3, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. We, we kind of necessarily, purposely, the way we go is we think too much of ourselves. Even when we think bad about ourselves, most often we're thinking too much of ourselves. Now, what the heck does that mean? I'll tell you a story. Years ago, um, maybe it wasn't years ago. I want to think it was a long time ago, but it probably wasn't that long ago. But talking to my wife and just struggling with some things and things in me. Not things from outside, but just things in me. And, and I used the term self-loathing. And, and, and sometimes it's like, I just, I hate this about me. And not just I hate this about me, but I hate, I hate me. I hate this about me. Why am I like this? Why can't I change this? Why, why do I always kind of come back to this point? And my wife, Miss Harriet, who's up with the kids right now, she cocked her head. Once she cocks her head, you know you're about to get shot. <laughs> it's done. She cocked her head and she said, why is that surprising to you? I said, Jesus, help me. If you were counseling someone, and they were struggling with things, you wouldn't think it was strange for them. So if, if they can struggle with stuff, why, why should it be surprising to you that you struggle with things? So in my self-loathing, I'm actually thinking of myself more highly than I ought to. Oh my gosh. See, even when we're looking like, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Oh, very often, be careful. That is a way that the enemy wants to get in. That is like a fake humility that makes us feel like, oh, I'm so humble, I'm so this. No, you're not. You're probably just proud and arrogant. I'm saying that because I know it very, very well. I know it well. So <clears throat> what we often do in the church is we put on this pretense of having stuff together. God wants to break down that pretense. He wants to break it down. A full-fledged attempt to put on a front of having life altogether is a monstrous form of idolatry that's by and large considered acceptable in the Christian community. 
not only is it considered acceptable, but more often than not, it is invited, it is encouraged in Christian community. Now, what does that mean? See, if we come together, and, and I get together with, with Brother Joel, say, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm good, I'm good. How you doing, Larry? I'm like, it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood for me, too. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking, and, and we talk, and, um, you know, we get together, and everything's always wonderful. Everything's always good, and so we come, you know, on Sunday morning, we come together, we do our thing, we come to cipher groups, whatever else, and we're always putting on this pretense of everything's cool, everything's good, you know? That's easier. It's much easier. So we, I, I'm learning. I'm in slow class, but I'm learning. Be careful the question you ask. How you doing, brother? Please don't tell me the true answer. Just say good and let's go on. But if we're going to have real community, we've got to break through that idolatrous mess that says, oh, I'm good. I'm all set. My life is good. I'm, you know, everything's great. No, it's not. Now, that doesn't mean every conversation everywhere all the time we've got to go in the whole litany of everything we've been through. But it does mean that there's a real place in Christian community to be authentic and to be real and to break it down and to, and to deal with reality because God deals with us in reality. He doesn't deal with us anywhere else. Peter Scazzaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Christianity. Um, talks about different ways in which we have a great uh, temptation towards a false self. One of them is through performance. I base my worth and value on what I do. One of them is through what I have, my possessions. I base my worth and value on my stuff. Look, I know y'all look at me and say, man, he's got so much bling up there. I know people are looking at my... Big Ben sneakers, which I bought like six years ago for $15. Say, man, I wish I had sneakers like that, man. Um, maybe not, not that, uh, you know, jealous of my, my bling. But um, that's another thing, what I possess. And, and also what others think of me, right? These are all ways that we draw um, our temptation toward a false self. I get my affirmation through what I do, through what I have, through other, what other, other people think. But Scazzaro says this. He says, only the love of God in Christ is capable of bearing the weight of our true identity. Only the love of God in Jesus Christ is capable of bearing the weight of my true identity. Nothing else works. Nothing else works. We, we got a, I um, can't remember what it's called now, a Wii for Christmas. I know that's like, oh, people got Wiis like 25 years ago, right? It's called a Wii, right? Reggie looking at me like, what you talking about, man? <laughs> so when you get the Wii, you have to put together your little character. I got my little guy with his little semi-goatee, blonde hair, little fat guy. That's me, you know. But my wife, she made her character, and she named her character True Self. I said, that's just so cool. Anyway, that, that's just a side. But <laughs> see, in all of this, here's a question. In what ways is God calling you to embrace frailty and death in your own life? In what ways is he calling you to do that? A treasure in a clay pot. Treasure keepers embrace their frailty. Secondly, 
Treasure keepers are grounded in faith. Look at verse 13. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Stop right there. Paul here is quoting Psalm 116. You can turn there to Psalm 116 for just a minute. We're going to come back to 2 Corinthians 4. But if you want to turn to Psalm 116, um, he's quoting actually just a small part of verse 10 from Psalm 116, where the psalmist says, I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. He says, I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. Let's just read through a few of the verses from <coughs> Psalm 116. I'm going to start at verse 1. He says, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. If you got a pen, if you want to, you could circle that word simple. The Lord pre preserves the simple. When I was brought low, and I circled that as well, low, he saved me. The simple and the low, the clay pots, the worthless ones, the ones that are discarded by the world. Verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has now dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 10, I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. See, God has rigged this thing. He's rigged life in such a way that he has an unalterable agenda. And that is his unalterable agenda is that he will put you in situations that require you to have faith in him. Dude, I don't want to be in those situations. I want my bank account together. I want my family, you know, just chilling. I want, I want everything together in such a way it doesn't really require. I'll just, I'll just give them thanks all the time. Lord, I just want to be, I just want to give you thanks. But then he puts you in a situation where you got to have faith. This part of my life is so jacked up, it's not even funny. And this piece over here is falling apart and gone to pieces. What do I do? I'm afflicted. I'm persecuted. God says, are you grounded in faith? If we're going to keep this treasure, we're grounded in faith. We're grounded in faith that looks to God and believes in God in the midst of everything else that's going on. See, in affliction is when we find out where our faith really is. Quite a few years ago, my wife and I went to the movies. We went to see Malcolm X. We went to a theater in Center City. I knew I was white then. 
I was the only white person in the theater, but that was cool. Like, here to see Brother Malcolm. So I'm sitting in the middle of, hey, by all means necessary, y'all. So I'm just, I'm checking out the I don't know when it was in the movie. I was watching the movie. My wife is beside me, you know, and we're just enjoying Malcolm X. And all of a sudden, I didn't see it coming. Out of the back, someone comes up and boom, smacks me on the side of my head, punches me in the side of my head, knocks me out of my chair, down on the ground. I don't remember being hurt. I just remember being, what in the world just happened to me? I was still down. My wife got up real quick. My wife is four feet, 11 and one half inches. And don't forget the half. She's a small piece of leather. Well put together. You don't mess with Miss Harriet. That girl got up like a rocket. And she turned around. And she's looking at the guy, not eyeball to eyeball because she's four foot eleven and a half, but like eyeball to chest. She's looking at the man. And she said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, Satan, to leave this place right now. And she just went going. She went off on the brother in Jesus' name. The only tongue she spoke with was English, and she did not stutter. She said, I command you in Jesus' name. That man looked at her. I got up, and I'm like, should I fight? I don't know what to do. I'm perplexed. And wife just went off in Jesus' name. And that man just looked, and then he turned around, and he walked out of the theater. He left. We sat down and watched the rest of the movie. Now, I'd be... I'll be honest with you, I watched the rest of the movie like this. Somebody had to have faith. God is good. In affliction, you find out what's inside of you. I found that out a lot of times. My wife, she's a woman of faith. She's not to be played with, y'all. Don't come punching me in the side of my head. It's no joke. Look at verse 14. He says, let, let's talk about where does this, we're grounded, uh, 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 treasure keepers are grounded in faith. Where does that faith come from? 14, he says, knowing, not guessing, not hoping, not thinking. He says, knowing. That he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Knowing my faith is based on the one who's raised up Jesus. My faith is based on the character of God Almighty. My faith is based on how my God has acted in time and has shown himself to be faithful. My faith is a faith that I know. I'm not guessing. I'm not hoping. I'm not thinking maybe. It's based on. On the acts of God, what he has done, how he's proven himself. So our belief is based on the sure hope of the resurrection and the nature of the person of God. Secondly, our faith, we're grounded in faith. Our faith is for the benefit of others. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also 
with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. You see this? Our faith is not just, oh, I'm going to have this great faith, so I'm going to make it. One day, I'll stand in the pearly gates and God will accept me in. No, our faith, as we walk out this faith walk, Paul is talking here as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I hold on to this faith not only for myself, I hold on this faith for your sake. Because I know that if I'm faithful to the commission that God has given me, I won't make it there alone. God has many in this city. He said that of Corinth. There are many here that God has to save. He said that of the Corinthian church. So Paul was radical about this idea. My faith isn't just about me. My faith is about what God wants to do in others through me. So it's a faith that has a benefit to others. And then verse 15, for it's all for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving for what purpose? To the glory of God. See, it always comes back to that, doesn't it? My faith, my belief ultimately ends in God being glorified. I'm not glorified in it. I'm not, I'm not the chosen one. That's Jesus Christ. Our faith always points as, our, as, as people look at the clay pot that we are in, who we are. It points back to the surpassing value, the surpassing greatness of the God who has saved us. That's always God's agenda is that he wants us to see and to be in a position that we can only make it by faith. Last point. Look at verse 16. Not only are we embrace our frailty, are grounded in faith, but we do not lose heart. Verse 16, the first word there is so. It's actually, in many other translations, it is translated, therefore. It's a conjunction between what's come before in this chapter and in this thought that Paul is giving and what comes after. So in other words, whatever he's about to say is directly connected to what he's already said. In other words, because we embrace our frailty and our weakness, because we are those who are grounded in faith. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So, therefore, we do not lose heart. That's, that's the third and last point today. Do not lose heart. Treasure keepers do not lose heart. And that, that word can be used and that phrase can be used in, in two different ways. It can be descriptive. In other words, Paul is saying the reality of my life, if you look at it, these 20 years of ministry with Jesus, being knocked off of horses, being beaten, being knocked down, all the things that I've been through, I do not lose heart. I have not lost heart. It's descriptive of what he's been through, of his walk with God. But it's also prescriptive. It's also a word to say, brothers and sisters, please do not lose heart. No matter how hard it gets. No matter how nasty it looks, no matter how hopeless it seems, do not lose heart. Believers, treasure keepers, you have a treasure that God has placed in you. Do not lose heart. Well, that helps to know that, but, but how is it that I don't lose heart? 
Look at the verses. Verse 16. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Don't lose heart, number one, because you value the spiritual over the physical. You value the spiritual over the physical. Don't lose heart, though your outer self is wasting away. I am 47 years old, and I know this to be true. Brother Reggie and, bro- and, and, and Brother Gaines and some of the other brothers were going to play basketball last week, the week before, sometime, and they, they asked me, and I said, well, yeah, man, I might want to do that. Let me think about that. Let me, let, let me ponder these things of God. And as I pondered my knees... Not prayer knees, but, but weak old knees. And as I pondered things, I said, perhaps the Lord would be leading them to go play basketball. <laughs> now, if they say, come on, bro, let's play a game of pig. I'm like, I'm down with that. I'm good. I'm good. I can't do horse. That's too many letters. But I can do pig. I got three little trick shots. P-I-G out of here. I can do pig. They value to not lose heart. We've got to value the spiritual. Look at what he says. Though our outer self is wasting away, the word there is a word that you would use for a moth eating away at something or a worm eating away at something. Our outer man is wasting away. Now, a moth ain't going to eat your sweater in a minute. But if you leave that sweater there long enough without moth balls, eventually... When the moths get to it, it's going to be gone. And this outer self is wasting away. Everything is moving towards a particular direction. So the problem is that we so often value the physical more than we value the spiritual. So the outer man is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is that happening? Is that true for you? Is that true for me? I'll say this. If it's not true, it's not God's fault. If my inner man is not being renewed day by day, it's not God's fault. It's not, it's not your neighbor's fault. You can't, you can't tell your neighbor it's your fault that I'm not being renewed day by day. You can't tell your mama, your daddy, your brother, your sister, no one else. I've got to take that myself. Now, let's deal in reality. Some of us today feel it right here. I feel like, man... My inner man is not being renewed day by day. Pay more attention to it. Pay more attention to the inner man than the outer man. Because whatever you have, however you look, whatever you're trying to, whoever you're trying to impress, at the end of the day, it all burns up. It's not going nowhere. I says, pay attention. You want to not lose heart? If if I just am am, am putting my trust in this, y'all can look at me and know I'm in trouble. Right? But the inner man's being renewed day by day. Secondly, how do we not lose heart? We value the eternal over the temporal. Verse 17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light, momentary affliction turned quickly over to Chapter 11, 2 Corinthians. We value the eternal over the temporal. Paul says, light momentary affliction. I'm going to pick up in verse 24 of chapter 11. 
<clears throat> Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift in the sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all other things. There was a daily pressure on me of my anxiety toward all, for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Light momentary afflictions. Light momentary afflictions. It, it's, mm, the devil had to be mad when Paul wrote that. Just kind of like, I was talking in the last service about Mike Tyson. Most of the fights he won early in his career, he won before the bell rang. Because the, his opponents were intimidated before the bell ever rung. They were scared of Mike Tyson. And they had pretty good reason to be from what I saw. But then there was this dude named Buster Douglas. He was no special heavyweight. He had won some matches. He had lost some fights. He was no special. But he got in a ring with Mike and said, give it your best shot. Hit me. And Mike hit him with his best shot right on the jaw. And, and it's almost like Buster said, a fly. A fly just landed on me. What happened? And Mike all of a sudden got scared himself. Mike had never been scared in the ring. Now Mike was scared. I hit him with my best shot, flush on the cheek, flush on the jaw, and it didn't move him. Now Mike didn't know what to do with himself. I'm, I'm not talking bad about Mike right now. I'm, what I'm saying is this. Paul, through all that he had been through, <laughs> that we just read about, he calls it light momentary affliction. How in the world? Think of what you've been through. I bet no one in this room would say, I can look back over my life and talk about the things I've been through, light momentary affliction. We wouldn't say that. We would say, this was hard. This was weighty. This was difficult. This was too much to bear. Paul says light momentary affliction. Why? Because he, eval he values the eternal over the temporal. Look at the word he uses again here. The light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The word he's using there is something that is weighty. Something that is substantive. Something that cannot be moved. He says this other stuff it goes this way. It goes that way. It passes. It's over in a little while. But what I'm looking for, what I'm believing God for, what I'm tapping into is a promise of God that never goes away. A promise of God that cannot be moved. A promise of God that is, that is my inheritance through Jesus Christ, through this treasure that I've been given that nothing can do away with. Stuff comes, stuff goes. People come, people go. Seasons of life we have to go through. But Paul says, the treasure that I have and allows me to look forward to what God has promised with a surety that I will not be moved. I don't lose heart. I'm struggling right now, but I don't lose heart. The last thing he says, verse 18. 
We look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't lose heart. We focus on the unseen. We're so focused so often on what's right before our physical eyes, on what I see happening right now, and I'm living in fear of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Paul says, that has not captured my heart. That has not captured my attention. I'm looking at things that physical eyes can't see, but they're more true than anything I can see with my physical eyes. I'm looking, I'm tapping into, I'm focusing on that which is unseen. That's why I don't lose heart. Let me close with this. Many of you have probably read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you have not read them, you ought to. It's a short little book. And in this book, it is a series of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. And basically what's happening throughout the book is the senior demon is giving advice and counsel to the, jun to the junior demon of how he can so work in the life of this man that he pulls him away from Christ and leads him into perdition to be forever with Satan and his demonic forces. It's a book that has <laughs> so much depth to it. Uh, Lewis, after he wrote it, said it took everything out of him to write that book. And it took him a good time to recover from it because he had to put on such a mindset. It's deep. If you read it, you will not be disappointed. You'll learn a lot about the ways of the Lord and uh, the ways of the enemy. But let me just read a, a short section from it. Um, he says, let me just read it. He says, the, and, and well, let me say this. Because it's one demon talking to another, when they talk about the enemy, who are they talking about? Okay. So when I say enemy, it's hard for us to think as believers, God, when I say enemy. But it's a demon talking to a demon. So as the humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which... They call the present for the present is the point at which time touches eternity of the present moment of, and of it only humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned Either, either with, and he mean, meaning God, would have them concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on the eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. So he says, God's will is that we would be focused on eternity and also be able to live in the present moment, enjoying God, understanding God, walking with God, consciously aware of His presence right now. 
But now the demon says to the junior demon, our business is to get them away from the eternal and away from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. Some of you have been living in the past. You're trapped by your past. The enemy continues to bring it up to you. You continue to allow that. But he says, but this is of limited value for they have some real knowledge of the past. And it has a determinate nature. And to that extent, it resembles eternity. In other words, there's something real in the past. But he's saying... It would be a a work of the enemy to get us to focus so much on the past that we're not living in the present and looking for eternity. But he said it's far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already. So that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it's unknown to them. So that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. In other words, our fantasy about what is in the future, our fears, living off of our fears of the future, when we are constantly focused on that, rather than focused on the reality of God, and rather than focused on the will of God and the purpose of God and His eternal promises, we are at a point then, where we are likely to fall because we're dealing with things that aren't real anyway. So we become consumed with how people think about us. Oh, if I do this, what will they think? We're not consumed with, God, what is your will? How then shall I live? It's not that we don't care about the future at all, but it is that we are living in the present, in God's presence, We are living with eternity in mind in such a way that we're securing a walk in the future that honors God. You see, when we become concerned with everything else rather than honoring God, we fall off of of where God would have us to be. We, we, We fall into a place where instead of keeping that treasure, we're losing the treasure. It's oozing out because we're consumed with so many other things. Brothers and sisters, my admonition to you this morning is be aware that you have a treasure that you could never put a price on. And that treasure is in a clay pot. That's you. Don't don't overestimate yourself. Glorify God. Don't think, oh, that couldn't happen to me. You're a clay pot. A clay pot can be discarded in a second. In and of yourself, no value. But the fact that God has placed the treasure in you gives you value and worth beyond compare. That's totally, totally tied into the treasure that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.